Welcome to Behind the Edit, a podcast that peeks behind the scenes and discusses the unexpected and often very personal victories, stumbles and detours on a path to building a creative brand and business. I'm your host, Christine Mankies, creative pioneer, award-winning photographer, founder of The Pretty Blog, editor, visual storyteller, problem solver, recovering workaholic, mom and dynamic dot connector. Over the next few months, I'll be sitting down with South African multifaceted designers and entrepreneurs to uncover their unique and at times zigzag journeys to build what seems like a perfectly edited brand. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming Janae Haynes in the studio for our final episode of Behind the Edit Season 1. Janae's story of founding Matsudiso, a Cape Town-based African luxury shoe brand, is an interesting one. As an American living in South Africa, with a background in digital marketing, she was driven by passion and know-how to pivot her mother-in-law's ballet shoe business into a brand new company. Janae's go-getter attitude alongside her passion for South Africa and its people is at the core of what she does. From the material selection to the bold and colorful design aesthetic, each Matsudiso creation is a multi-layered celebration of Africa. Not to mention Janae's respect for Africa's natural resources and relentless pursuit to keeping her brand's environmental impact as light as possible. This inspired the TWYG Sustainable Fashion Award to crown Matsudiso as the 2020 accessory winner. Besides the visual ode, she writes to our beloved country, what I love about Janae is her multi-dimensional approach to business and life. With her, it's clear that there's always more than meets the eye, and she's open to sharing that candidly with everyone she meets, sprinkling realistic hope wherever she goes. Janae, welcome to Behind the Edit. We are so excited to hear more about this story behind the brand of a family-owned business and designing shoes made by hand. Please tell us a bit more about this family-owned factory, Matsuditsu. Thank you so much, Christine. And I'm so beyond excited to be here and just to get a chance to share our story too. Yeah, so Matsuditsu started in 2017 as a way to keep our family factory going, like as another side project in the factory to keep our team employed. So our team is actually my mother-in-law's team at the time. And so how it started was I met Christian, my husband, in South Korea post-teaching English, and we fell in love and we were trying to figure out where in the world do we live in South Africa? Do we live in the States? And it was a bit of a toss-up. We actually went back to the States for a while And then we were looking at, you know, where are we at in our lives? What could we put our talent towards? And my background is digital marketing. So I was going to go find another job in tech or starting a business was always like a possibility, something in the back of our minds. But Christian in Korea had told me about his mother's factory where she was making dancewear, like ballet dancewear, um, tutus, ballet shoes, ballroom shoes, the whole thing. And she had 47 employees at the time, which is massive for a dance oh, that's factory. Big. <laughs> Very. And especially because the industry was in decline at the time and she needed help. She needed more hands on deck. My family was doing their thing. They're married. They're doing awesome. And, you know, we don't have kids. And so we thought, well, let's go back and help her and just learn from this experience because she was so open-armed to just like let me in and be a part of the whole experience, which is just incredible because when in my life would I get to be in manufacturing, you know? (laughs) And it was fascinating to me. And especially in a country where I felt like maybe I could make an impact. 
So I started off doing their digital marketing and built her website and tried to get online sales up. And then in about, it was like a two and a half year kind of stint, Matt Cidiso came about because my mother-in-law had mentioned making shoes. And I knew zero, obviously, about <laughs> making shoes. So when they had mentioned it, I was like, oh, I don't know. And then there was a little spiel in between where I had gone and left for another company. I was in the family business for two years and I was like, listen, I love you guys, but I don't want to see you as colleagues. Let me actually leave for a while and go do something else. And so I did, and I had a terrible boss. So it was the inspiration I needed to get out. And it had been about a year that I'd been in that company, and I was like, okay, I'm ready. In the background, I'd been planning the shoes and ideas and kind of really thinking about it. And then I came back to the factory and told my mother-in-law, hey, I'm, let's do this. And she's like, yeah, let's go. So, I mean, she's always been very much ambitious and open-armed. So that's kind of how it started. It was many years behind the beginning, you know, like yeah. I think most businesses start. It's so fascinating to me that you basically came from like wanting to save one business. Like you said, the dance shoes was in decline. And as far as I understand, she was doing all these ballet shoes and dance shoes. And at that time, if I'm correct, ballet was still part of the school curriculum. Yes. So that changed, which obviously meant that the shoe sales declined. But here you come with knowing that there's a decline and you need to do something, which I think a lot of businesses have this connection to, we don't have everything figured out and everything perfect, but you have something. I know mm -hmm. when Kat and I spoke, which is our first episode, we spoke about having these tools and you had a factory, which is like a massive tool. You had a lot of people that knew how to make shoes and you sit there with actually an opportunity. Absolutely. It was an incredible opportunity. I mean, not to say we didn't have insane bumps, right? Because <laughs> the shoes we were making compared to ballet shoes are very different. And it took us years to actually learn. I was basically modeling European and international shoes and thinking, how in the world can I create something that feels modern and relevant and still South African, still African, still has ruggedness or earthiness to it that feels authentic, but is well-made where it can compete internationally. And that was always the vision. So starting from ballet shoes to like, what materials do you use and how do you even begin? It was insane. But to just, like you say, to have a space to start in and to have a team that was willing was more than enough to create a vision. If the vision's there and you're constantly moving towards that vision, then, you know, I think the puzzle pieces just fall into place over time. So yeah, it has been incredible. Well, I'm so excited to hear more about those puzzle pieces <laughs> because at the end of the day, I think a business is a lot of little puzzle pieces, as you've said now, that comes together. So tell us a bit more about the actual word, like the name. What is behind the name? I'm sure there's beautiful meaning behind it. And I'm very curious to hear more about that. Yes. I think when people meet me, they're really taken aback because they're like, okay, American girl with, you know, Matsidiso, <laughs> which is Sutu actually in origin. And I think Swana Basutu is Sutu. It has derivatives under each, but I think it means the same thing under all of the languages. Anyone out there, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but how it started was my mother-in-law told me this story that she grew up in the free state during apartheid. And her dad was one of the first farmers to actually build Sutu homes. And she learned Sutu as a child. She's Afrikaans, but she learned Sutu and she learned other languages around her during that time. And her family was very, you know, while obviously a horrible, horrible time in history, she didn't have the same kind of segmented situation on her farm, which was wonderful. So she had Sutu friends who were children of the domestic workers. And so 
her mother had a miscarriage and she was the next child born. And her Sutu family named her Matsidiso, which means comfort after difficulty wow. or like a condolence or like this positive sentiment. And when she told me the story, I just knew because it was a story of South Africa as a story of something that was real in history. It was a story of relationships. And I just got the goosebumps when she told me. So I was just like, this has to be the name because this brand ultimately isn't about me. I didn't want it to be about me. I wanted it to be about South Africa, what I get to experience every day as a foreigner to get to look in. And I think at the time, I didn't realize it was a name, like a person's name (laughs) with a beautiful meaning. I thought it was like Ubuntu. So I just took the name and went with it. But it's been wonderful because when I meet Sutu people at trade shows or it's just like this instant bond and connection and conversation. And it's been really lovely, but just all sorts of people. It's a good talking point because people are like, why, what? None of this makes sense. And in the end, I feel like it's meant to bring people together in community, which is what I wanted to build the brand around anyway. It was like, how do we create shoes? But the shoes tell a story and the shoes create community and a sentiment of oneness and unity where there's, you know, this celebration of diversity, yet unique individual perspective. So we do also a lot of blogs and stuff on women of all different backgrounds and their stories. And we've had a few men on the blog too, just explaining their perspective, their story, their background. And that's what we wanted it to be. It's like a community builder brand more than just shoes. The name itself, I think it also ties back to the story of the previous factory, if I could call it that, you know, how it like transitions. Absolutely. Maybe a hard time. Mm. And it really is a bit full circle. It's so beautiful to hear. Thank you so much. No, I think with the factory too, you're right. There's so many layers to the story and it's a bit of a elevator ride rather than an elevator pitch. But, (laughs) you know, but I think too, with the wanting to really uplift and support our team members and upskill them and cross train them and thinking about what it means to provide a place of trust and empowerment. Matt CD, so the name also very much came into that because it was like, how do we create, like you say, comfort after difficulty? How do we find hope around every corner? How do we keep persevering? And also South Africans in general are so resilient and incredible. Now we've gone through COVID and and I just know in my heart things as grim as they can look, I just feel like there's this drive and this hope that still lives here that will find a better situation in the future. And I've always admired South Africans for that perseverance and that will and that drive. I think it's incredible. Resilience is definitely part of our heartbeat. I can attest to that. (laughs) Every time I've been through difficult times, I think, why am I still doing this? But I think it is ingrained in our DNA, probably. And I think your name and the meaning, that comfort after difficulty, it ties into so many elements of even just the entrepreneurial journey. And as you just mentioned, I love that. I think we should (laughs) definitely take that to heart. It's an elevator ride more than an elevator pitch, which I think is really what we're trying to create here at Behind the Edit. You know, for us, it's important that people hear the real stories, what people really go through building a business and a brand, which brings me to my next question. You coming from a digital marketing background and obviously having quite a few tools in your back pocket to build something new and create something new out of this factory and all the hard work that's gone into years of building something. 
And I think as a marketer going into manufacturing, <laughs> there must be quite a lot of learnings along the way. So <laughs> I'm very curious to know a bit more about that American girl, you know, putting her feet onto African soil. <laughs> and just that question in itself, you know, being an outsider, if I could say, with all respect, coming into an African context with the digital background, but now coming into the real workings of manufacturing shoes. Tell us a bit more about that journey and your first few weeks entering that space. I think that must be so interesting. <laughs> you know, I think the pieces somehow naturally fell into place and I was never that overwhelmed because I think with any business, if you have a strong team, and it wasn't always that way, but I think Antoinette, Christian's mom, just had a very technical background and a strong understanding of how to make patterns and also a yes person. It's incredible to meet somebody who just never looked at the word no or never took it too seriously. It was always like, you say no, well, I'll find another way. There's another path. And being around somebody like that is contagious. And I mean, I give her a lot of credit because you feel so supported, obviously, on this journey. It's not completely alone. And you really need that support, I think, for the journey that we went on because it has been very messy, hairy, complicated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think just having somebody else reassuring you like things are going to be fine and uplifting and supporting is a massive factor to just keeping that vision in line. And I also think just having a strong vision, like from day one, I can see the future and I feel like... That has been so important and powerful. And I think that comes from your why, like why, you know, most business owners they always say, well, what's your why? I mean, and it gets thrown around, but I feel like it's sincerely true. We've had burnout more times than I can say. I've obviously had moments where I'm like, I quit, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. I've had all the same feelings and sentiments I think everybody else has. But, you know, having my husband or my mother-in-law or the team share something beautiful with me that they learned that day instantly takes you out of it. And you're like, you know what? We keep going. This is what we're here for. And being there for the team and making sure that they have food on their table at the end of the day, it is my why, you know? The amount of times I wanted to quit because things got really hairy and hefty and heavy and hard. It's just waking up the next day and re-looking at a situation or a team member tells you something wonderful. And then you're back to passionate. And I think that's so important for the whole journey. Sorry, I'm kind of like going everywhere. No, I love this. <laughs> it's, it's all over the show. I guess there's no like linear answer to this because I think if I knew what I was getting into, maybe I would have been more afraid. But it was a blind decision that was led by passion. And that is why we're still here. And there is a vision behind it that is very strong. And to have team members who really understand that vision and the amount of times we've been told by other factories, don't start a handmade slow fashion factory, you're not going to make it. The amount of mentors who are like, okay, if you're going to succeed, you need volume, volume, volume. There's been so many reasons why we shouldn't do it. And our team members in and of themselves learning how to make wooden heels. I mean, that was something that was only the last year and a half. But to take a literally a piece of wood that we buy from the neighbors down the road, cut up the piece of wood, carve it down. And for them to experiment with me and be willing to do that and open to it is, you know, so the success for me is a very much a shared factor. It's a team story. It's wholeheartedly not just my vision. It's them sharing it and being open enough to share the vision with me that I think is why we're still here. I mean, for me, at least. So difficult times, as you've just mentioned, has been all over the show. <laughs> they get pulled together by all the beautiful stories and the realness of the difference you guys are making by providing a job to someone else. 
I know that you as a business have a very strong willed story in terms of making sure that you guys are sustainable, you're building community, which I really look up to. And I think that's so beautiful. But tell us a bit more about the inner workings of that. Like you have this vision, you want to build a sustainable brand, you want to build a brand that uplifts community. But practically, I feel like, again, coming from a marketing point of view, it's very easy to put the beautiful PR words on paper. You know? Absolutely. Um, and if you have a strong marketing angle, it's sometimes easy to try and paint that picture, whether it is through Instagram, whether it's through your storytelling, visuals, um, blog posts, etc. But practically, you know, again, as you said, messy, hairy, like the realness of behind the scenes. Give us a bit of perspective. How do you actually build that into the value system of what you do on a day-to-day basis? I love that question because I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think greenwashing is out there by big companies. You know, it's easy to paint a picture. It's a different thing to live by it. And for me, it's been very important. Well, for oh, let me just step back. So phase one is, I think in the beginning, as an entrepreneur, you always have this grand vision of where you're going to go. And your perspective versus reality are very different things. <laughs> At least for me, I wasn't very realistic. So I think like one conversation we had chatted about is like my first year, it was like, we're giving 5% of our profits back to the team. But the thing is, it didn't make an impact because at the end of the day, we were in our early years of business and you're growing and your money goes back into the business. So your profits are very small. And the other aspect is that I learned that money is an incentive and it's important, but it is not the only incentive. And in fact, there are very many other more important incentives for teams. One is just security of a job. I mean, that alone, especially now during the crisis, you hear a lot of sad stories about not only people losing their jobs, but the way they lost their jobs. So it's like the security of knowing that you're still going to be taken care of, that their back is taken care of first, even before ours. Also, sustainability, you know, learning about, okay, I want a completely sustainable product. Is that realistic? No, because no product is completely sustainable unless you have the right eco thread and everything's recycled from something recycled. It's near impossible. And if there are brands doing that, then like mad respect. But it was something I also learned is I was trying to make everything 100% sustainable or that was the future vision. But it was like, oh, actually to do that, you need to jump some massive hurdles. And before you can even do that, you need to also be able to be profitable. And so you can take those profits and put them into other projects that will help you to gain that kind of vision that you want. So there's a million layers around sustainability that I've learned. But for me, with our product, it means sourcing locally and sourcing responsibly. So finding suppliers that are ethical in how they treat their employees, fair wages, that they're a byproduct of the leather industry, that the way that they're sourcing their products and they're also living with integrity is incredibly important to me. So how we vet our suppliers is important. But internally, also how we take care of our team members and what it means to empower them, what it means to build trust in a team, that is also sustainability. Coming from a work environment where I felt insecure and fearful, like the job that I was in before I came and started Matt City. So the way certain people were attacked and for the color of their skin, for their gender, for lots of areas where you look and you're like, okay, how do we create the whole opposite? I want an environment of trust, of understanding, of a win-win, of you understand me and I understand you. Because also I've learned, you know, you can 
help people, that they must want to help themselves as well. So to build a positive team, you need team members who are also building each other up, wanting a future and envisioning a future that is better. And how do you do that? And I think it took a lot more time than I even understood, especially in a climate like COVID-19 and lockdown and everything being there to answer their fears and to say, listen, like you guys still come first. Even if we have to go in short time, even if we have to pivot, you're a team and trying to get them to take care of each other, but also, I don't know, sorry, I'm like kind of ram- rambling. <laughs> no, <Let's>, I, <laughs> let me skip back. <laughs> I, I love what you're saying and I'm actually going to interrupt you right there yeah. because I feel there's already so much that you can take from everything you've just said. And I know you feel like you're like all over the show, but you're not. Like I'm hearing all these little bits that are so valuable. I actually want to highlight if you'd allow me to just like yes. go back for a few seconds Because it made me think, everything you just said made me think of the concept of like a family and this idea that people say charity starts at home. There's this idea that people want to help people and people want to make the world a better place. Let's just put it simply. I like to just simplify things (laughs) to the core. I love that. (laughs) I, I feel that's how people understand things. And this idea that we all inherently or I would like to think, we all want to make the world a better place. We want to look after people. We want to look after the planet. We want to look after the people we love. And we want to essentially build a community that can function together, even though we're all different, right? And I take that concept and I'm like, that basically is businesses as well. Businesses also operate like families in some sense. And this concept of charity starts at home is so true and it rings very true to me. There's no use in starting a business that, and I know that it's almost become super trendy for companies to go, um, and this is me not looking down on companies that are doing this, it's just an observation that a lot of companies are going out there starting young entrepreneurs with this idea of whatever we do, it has to be, you know, a socially supportive business. Like in some way, we need to make some social difference, you know, whether it is for every shoe we sell, we give one back to the community or anything like that. But many times those business models, they don't look at the fact that the company needs to be profitable first because how do you keep the doors open? That's always my question. So it's all good and well to have all these amazing intentions, but without having a structure that can support the main objective (laughs) to give people jobs (laughs) and to pay the salaries you actually need to have a system that is self-sustainable and that helps itself and that makes sure that you don't need external support to make it work, right? Like that is my first objective to say, okay, how can this thing be self-sustainable? And that by itself is a huge system that you need to figure out. And many times it takes years. Like I know with Pretty Block, it took us seven years to become profitable. Now that is a huge learning (laughs) all by itself. You're a thousand percent right. You're hitting the nail on the head. And it was something I only learned much, much later. But sorry, I'm interrupting, but I love what you're saying too. I think it's spot on and so true. And we put so much pressure on ourselves to be perfect and to look perfect because there's so much judgment online too, I think nowadays. It's easy for people to, oh, you're not using this material or you're doing that wrong. And it's such a bully place sometimes. And Mm. I think as business owners, you're so fearful of what are people going to say? What are Mm. they going to do? And obviously I'm over that by now. But Mm. in the beginning, I was almost crippled by posting Mm. anything, how I'm going to say it online, because I was so scared of the reaction. Oh, leather sustainable? How can you say that? You know, there's a lot of preconceived notions around how you feel you're supposed to be as a business owner. 
and it will cripple you and it will cripple the business if you hold on to, I must be perfect and do all these things perfectly. Mm. So you're right. I've like even advice from other businesses like, oh, how do you do it? How do you start? And especially on the sustainable side. And now I do exactly what you're saying. I say, listen, just choose one small little area. Don't go wide mm. like we did because that mm. was insane. That was part of the, if I can say, unsustainability of our business was that I went so wide because I didn't know anything about production. I didn't know anything about the manufacturing's woes. And so I just did what I thought was fun, which was to create. I just created and I created. <laughs> they just have a thousand skews, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And Christian kept telling me, stop, Janae, stop. You go to stop designing. And I was like, but this is so fun, you know? <laughs> Not even understanding what they're going through. Now, obviously, my empathy is wholeheartedly in the factory. But my main point is like, you're right. When I offer advice now to other entrepreneurs or young people who are starting, it's just like, start small, start simply, breathe, because it's not fun to be in a business, no matter how beautiful it looks, when it's stressful and large and bigger than you and you don't know where to touch because now it's become this beast that you don't have much control over. So hone it in, start simply, just take care of you and your team, start slow, agreed wholeheartedly. (laughs) And it can so easily become a beast, right? I think this episode might become super long, but we're going to try and keep it together. But (laughs) there's so many things that I can relate to, this idea of creating a little bit of a beast. You know, I remember with Pretty Blog, I think it was year four, we already had 500,000 page views on our blog. And at that stage, we weren't creating a physical product, but our product was editorials. It was writing, making sure that there's new content out there for people to consume. It was a little bit of a monster and we really needed to keep feeding it because otherwise this thing would die, right? And I think that's a place that many entrepreneurs find themselves in that's very scary because you're stuck in that spot where you're like, I've created this thing but I have no idea how to control it. I don't know how to bring it back. And I wholeheartedly believe in starting smaller, starting with taking care of the people in front of you, which brings me back to this concept that I just mentioned about like charity starts at home. It really is about taking care of the people that's closest to you first and no matter what anyone else says out there. And I would love to touch just on that subject that you mentioned about bullying because it's become a very real thing. You know, there's so much judgment and we're so vulnerable as small businesses because of Instagram and all the social media channels that we have a love-hate relationship with probably because we need to be on them. We need to really harness what it's enabled us to do digitally by building communities, selling our product. But on the other hand, it also exposes everything we think, everything we put out there gets judged. And this concept of sustainability, it's something we've touched on a little bit in the other episodes, but it's something I'm not an expert on, but I find extremely fascinating that there's so much judgment because of a few key words that's become super popular. Mm. But do people really think about the details of each of those terms, like the concept of sustainability, the concept of eco, the concept of vegan? For me, vegan is not about just the diet. It's very much about a judgment that also comes across like if you're creating leather products. And I'm sure that you have quite an interesting thought process currently on that about leather product being created. Personally, I love leather products, but I know that there's different feelings about it out there. What is your personal opinion about your view on sustainability, but then you are creating a leather product? Tell us a bit more about that. Sure. Um, So for me, 
sustainability is being in balance. And I think that comes with any kind of product or material or diet or whatever we do in our lives. And even how we run our business, being in balance, right? Feeling that kind of zen in the zone, that momentum, that energy that feels good. And there's no doubt about it. The leather industry in and of itself has created a CO2 mass pollution problem. And I won't deny that. But I also know that there are tanneries like, you know, Mossops and Wellington and doing incredible things. So they, first of all, recycle, I think, gosh, I'm going to get the facts wrong. So please forgive me, but please go to their website. But it's like a couple million liters of water every year when they're actually dyeing up the hides. They use a chemical processing that's also humane, that is safe for people to use. So like, it's not going to get into their employees' lungs and harm them. It's a safe component that comes from, I think, Europe or something. And that's what they use to chemically dye up the hides. They plant elephant bush in their areas to put CO2 back into the environment. They donate to incredible nonprofits. It's just like this list that is so amazing. And to me, they're an example of a sustainable supplier that's looking at their whole supply chain and in their impact. And it's the same for us from upcycling, using parts of our leather offcuts and turning them into other products to making on demand, which means that we don't have extra wastage. We don't have products that could end up in landfill. We really like any product that's ancient. We'd still on our shelf, like for that one person who might love it because I refuse to put things, you know, either we'll donate them or we make sure they go into the right hands or that somebody's going to actually buy the product that we don't waste. So for me, leather is not the problem. The consumption of and the use of leather on the grand scale might be the problem. But it's the same thing with like cotton or certain cotton fields. Some might be getting completely like destroyed because of the process where others are organic cotton and they're planting in those places. They're not using pesticides so that the plants can grow back again, that sort of thing. So it's a very wide view and looking at it not from leather's bad, but how are we using leather? Where are we sourcing from? Are they being ethical and sustainable about their usage of how they're making and how they're dying and how that relates to their own employees? For me, I think when it comes to anything, it's looking at the big process and not saying this one thing is bad because I was told these facts. Like you have to dig really, really deep into your research and nothing is black and white. You know, another kind of idea or concept is we would like to move into things like vegan leathers, like Pina Tex. And when it's affordable in South Africa, I will do that. We will do alternative options. But for now, when I look at supplies of making a beautiful product that's sustainable, has longevity, you know, you can come back and resole your shoes with us, those sorts of things that give your product more of a life cycle. Leather is really it for us. But like if I was to import Pinatex, it's 32 euros a square meter, which would mean our shoe costs around 4,000 rand. And already our products take a lot of time and effort and energy. So to charge that now doesn't make sense for South Africans. It's one of those things where I want it to be accessible to most of the marketplace that should somebody save up, they can still buy our shoes. So when an alternative leather makes sense, it's tested, it's durable. And I know that it's got a sustainable kind of story where we can use it sustainably. And it has longevity, like the vegan leather might maybe not work as a shoe. It might work amazingly as a bag, but maybe as a shoe, it lasts a season and then it falls apart. So those are all things that I consider when I'm going to use a product. But that's why leather in its most natural form, using high-end leathers that are 
like top grade leathers, there's a massive difference actually between leathers. So buying hides that are going to give your shoe more longevity, that are going to look prettier with time rather than fall apart after a few wears. Like those are important things that we look at. So yeah, so in a long story, as always, uh, (laughs) for me, (laughs) leather is not the issue. It's just the use and the use of anything in balance. Is it in balance with Mm. how we live our lives? And that's the important part for me. It basically comes down to building a business isn't simple, right? (laughs) No, exactly. (laughs) Really not. There's just so many elements that have to work together. And I love that you mentioned that it is complicated. You know, even though I like to make things simple for myself, I'm a picture person. So I like to bring things back to very simple pictures to explain to my team, to explain to the listeners, etc. But It is, even though we try and make things simple, there are still very complicated bits. And for everyone, that balance, like you've just mentioned, is also different. It's not the same for everyone. Like my diet and your diet or my exercise routine and your exercise routine isn't exactly the same. And that's what I love about the stories of businesses. So I'm very interested to hear a bit more about your approach to building this brand. As a marketer, what was your vision with the brand itself? Um, okay. So I think that's also pivoted a lot. I'm sure with every, (laughs) (laughs) without going into the grad story, I'll try and make it as simple as possible. I love your simple. It's the yin to my yang because I'm chaos. But I think that the vision has always been absolutely community, making sure that we have a team of people that are, you know, I think at the beginning it was like, can we employ more? And now my value lies in make sure that the team we have is really taken care of before we employ more. Make sure that the ecosystem within our business is healthy, people are happy before we employ more. Not because my future plan isn't to employ more, it's just that I've realized what's most important, like you say, is taking care of that circle that you have, that family environment feeling that people are are having a decent wage. They can go home at night and sleep easy they have something to look forward to, you know, before you hire on more and then everyone's working at this rate of chaos and hustling. For me, the biggest redirect has been back to balance because I've been through the chaos. Right before COVID, Christian's mom fell ill and we ended up taking over the whole factory. So now Antoinette's out and we are running the factory. And in that process of absolute chaos, I think we really sat with ourselves over that lockdown period And we decided, how do we make this a breathable environment for everyone, including ourselves? Because we were just running such a rat race. We were so burnt out that it was becoming painful and it was becoming hard. So the vision has always been create these shoes that celebrate the diversity of Africa while supporting artisans in a very positive and uplifting way, giving fair wages, making sure that we're using our products in the best way possible, being as sustainable as, as possible at the same time, breathing. And I think that's been the core, you know, I didn't consider that before. I didn't think that breathing was important, but now all I realize, (laughs) simplify, 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 and go back kind of to the basics, but still have that grandiose vision. And from that, I can say that the products are better. They're more beautiful and we've had more time to look at each product and to care about it and give it its own life more than before because before it was like we don't even know where to touch it's so crazy in here that like you don't ask me about that product because I don't know you go figure it out I'll be over here trying to work on this product and this situation over here so I think yeah just simplifying creating something beautiful giving it to the world as a gift I want it to be something that our team makes to me it feels like little gifts because 
I'm so proud of our team. Really, I have nothing to do with it. I'm just so proud of the ability transition from these really choppy shoes in the first years to something that's more refined and to learn about it and then to be able to share that with the world. So again, it's a little bit all over the show, but I think the vision of the shoes and celebrating South Africa in that and hopefully put South Africa in terms of not the tourist version of South Africa, not that that's bad. I'm just saying like to celebrate South Africa equally on an international scale to say, wow, the artisans here can do as much as the ones in Morocco or Peru or elsewhere where handcraft products are really celebrated. And to me, that has been the main vision is like just celebrate, create a beautiful product that we're all proud of at the end of the day. Congratulations, because I really think you have even though it feels chaotic in the background, I think from what people are perceiving when they see your shoes, I mean, I've seen your shoes at a few shows and it's absolutely beautiful. It really yeah. has like an African spirit to it. It has like a, a beautiful feel to it. And I love the fact that it has the hand quality, even though it is a professional product. Thank um, you so much. That means a lot to me and to the team. I'll, I'll share this with them and they're going to be like, thank you. Please <laughs> you <know> do. It. <laughs> and their incredible hand work, you know, hand and hard work, I'd say. Tell us a bit more about the team, the people who actually make the shoes. Take us into this journey of entering a factory. This is all audio. We don't have visuals. So you really have to be descriptive. So oh, people are coming into this factory. <laughs> what are they seeing? Who are the people? And what do they physically do with their hands? Mm. So... I'd say it starts probably with a pattern making process. So when I have a concept or something that I would like to bring to life, which is typically, oh, God willing, it is stickman drawings and Ricardo knows how to dissect <laughs> what the heck I'm doing. So it probably starts somewhere with Christian, who's running production, Ricardo, who's our production manager, and Ricardo, who's a pattern maker, showing them what I'd like to make. We all look at it. We see, is it possible? What materials does it require? Who do we have to source from to get the components needed to make the shoe, say from a design point of view at least, then it will make its way down the line. So in that process, Ricardo will make the pattern, then it gets turned into a prototype where Nazim will cut the pattern and then Ikshan will click it. He's one of our team members. It goes down to lasting to Derek and then it goes to Pam who does some fitting and then the sewing ladies, which is, I mean, th there's a whole bunch of us, but there's Sandra and Patty And then it will go to William and Wayne, who literally hand cut the leather soles. They use beeswax and polishing to make sure they have a beautiful shine. And then it gets cleaned and finished and out the other side. Then it goes to Shahid, who's our customer service and dispatch manager. He's a incredible jack of all trades and he's really a godsend. They all are. Just to have reliable, incredible team members is wonderful. So that's kind of like the shoe process. But in the day, it's anything from marketing to sourcing materials to, um, you know, one day might be like focused online. One day might be looking at our finances and doing accounting. Another day might be being with you in this lovely, <laughs> incredible, beautiful office of yours chatting about business. So I think, you know, as well, it's such a multi-layered kind of process. But the factory is warm. The people are loving. They have families. I think it's just so incredible for me to this day to be able to walk on the line and watch them make shoes. It's such a beautiful art form. And I think that's why I'm so passionate is I don't want to see footwear get lost. You saw Green Cross, which was sadly sold and they took their, for a dollar more, you know, they go to China. Chic Shoes closed down maybe because of Wooly's contract that pulled out, went to China. 
thousands of jobs lost in the footwear sector in the Western Cape because of decisions that were about profits and not people. And the profits were already there, but a little more profit that needed to be juiced out of the system. And lucky us, we got some of the team members from those amazing factories that are phenomenal at what they do. Some have 30, 35 years experience in the footwear trade. And if we don't have people building up small shoe factories, I mean, I love that new little footwear factories are popping up everywhere and shoe brands. I think it's welcome. There's more than enough room in this space. And I think it was becoming a lost space. It's almost like extinction, you know, because there's still like 30 million imports coming into South Africa for footwear. So there's all this room to create something beautiful within and to keep these skills. I mean, there are incredible skills here. So for me, it's just, it's still phenomenal to get to walk on the line and experience what they know. And they are the experts in what they do. I am more clued up in digital marketing and that sort of side of business, but they're experts at what they do. And I love that I get to see that and celebrate that with them like daily. And it still gives me so much energy to see a new sample come off the line. It's so exciting when you had something planned in your mind and you see it come out the other side, and everyone's excited about it. It's really, really incredible. Shanae, your, your passion is literally contagious. I'm like sitting here trying to keep myself together, literally, because there are tears like right there. I think what we have lost in the fashion space, in the mass consumption, you know, we get as consumers, and I'm including myself, we're so used to going to these mass stores. We're like, oh, I need a new jean. I need a new this. You know, I need a pair of boots for winter. And you just consume without even thinking about where it comes from, who's been handling it, and how it's affected a local industry. And I think for all of us, it is impossible to have gone through COVID without thinking about our local industries, thinking about the person next door that has lost a job because of either businesses that had to close or, as you've mentioned, also over time, you know, there's just not enough profit and we have to change the system up and people lose jobs. And to hear the story of the shoe, how it moves through the factory and how many hands literally touch it and work on it to create that one pair of shoes. You know, we get with the local edit that we are building now, which many people have only recently realized it's going to be an app that we are going to sell local products on, the podcast is just a small part of it. And we are so excited. I'm as excited about what we are doing as it seems you're excited about your team. Can't wait to see uh, <laughs> what you guys do. It's going to be amazing. I know it. Oh, thank you so much. I think the one question that always pops up in conversation is this idea that, you know, local is unattainable. It's not cheap enough or we just can't afford that. And my question always is, it's the way you look at it, right? Like if I could own one pair of shoes, I know it's kept 10 families alive, I would much rather buy one pair of shoes than have five pairs of shoes from a mass shop, to be honest. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's the education around local that needs to still happen over time. I do think COVID has definitely highlighted the idea that we need to support local. I'm curious to have some insight into what your experience was during COVID. You've obviously told us about quite a few pivots and <laughs> a breathing time, which it seems COVID's been enabling you just to breathe and refocus. But in terms of this focus a little bit more towards local, how has that affected your business? We feel incredibly blessed because we have the most phenomenal customers that have been there year on year. And I personally feel the pivot towards local is growing. I do agree. There's absolutely still a need for an education around it. And I think a lot of the times people were looking for, you know, um, 
say, Zara has this really cool design. Where can I find it on the local market? And I think there was a time where, okay, there were gaps. But now I really think those gaps are being filled everywhere you look. Like, South African fashion is incredible. And the designers in this country are surreal. The thing is, you can't replicate the quality, the originality, all the beautiful colors, the aspects that go into that. It's a unique perspective, too, because it's a South African perspective, which is full of stories and history and color and diversity and culture. And it just cannot be replicated. So for me to buy something personally, to buy something mass produced versus something local is like, why would I even? Because like you say, buy fewer, but at the same time, the uniqueness of what you can buy local, you know, you can buy something from a chain store, but so-and-so will have it too. Whereas you buy something local and it feels good. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It has a story, it has a community behind it. I mean, what's more special than that? I do think there is an education that every brand, we've got to keep telling the story of why it's important, not for ourselves as owners, but for our teams behind us, you know. But I do believe that the pivot is happening. We've had some really incredible celebrities also supporting us, which I think shows a lot, you know, Joburg side where maybe people are more brand conscious about like Louis Vuitton and this versus a local luxury item where I feel like that's changing now. And it is seeping through. I think the message is getting out. Having like Cyril Ramaphosa talking about supporting local is incredible. To make sure it's coming from the top. Hey, like just to have every faucet of society really collectively saying, let's support each other. It is filtering through. And financially, I understand because handmade is going to cost more, but it is just that pivot of I need less. You know, in college, I was like that. I thrift and buy all these things and have millions of shirts. And then eventually it became like an illness for me where I was like, oh, I feel weird having so much stuff. And it was just a pivot of mindset, not to say anyone should feel weird if they're still shopping, you know, H&M or elsewhere. It's just like anything. Take one step. Try one shop out that you'd like to give a try. Have a relationship. And for me, I think the community aspect comes in in that when you people do buy from you, I can talk to them. I mean, I chat to our customers often on Instagram just about how their day is, where they went to on vacation. Just normal conversations that have nothing to do with sales. It's just relationships. And I think that's a beautiful aspect too of local is that you will never find that one-on-one core relationship with a mass-produced company because they just can't. And I'm sure as businesses grow, they outgrow being able to talk to everybody, but you still know there's a community behind it, or maybe the customer service person now becomes that person that's the voice for the brand that just chats to you to say, how's your day going? So there's a lot of value, of course, in supporting local. It's more than just the product. And it's in the collective that there's power, right? Like as more and more people support local as more and more people become aware of the fact that some products might take a little bit longer than just going to the shop and picking up a product. Some products might be, I know like a lot of ceramicists we looked at, you know, they only create on order, which is a very different mindset for a consumer because I want that cup now and I want 10 of them now, (laughs) you know, and it's a whole different concept, a whole different mindset that we need to tap in. But I agree with you. I'm also the first person to put my hand up. I'm going to be very real about it. I don't just shop local. I try and support as much as I can. And I've come to this question of, okay, who can I support locally? If I'm looking at a candle, do I buy from a mass store or can I support someone local? But 
Also, all products aren't available local, but it's about taking that first step. And as a collective, we can all build up the industry. I think all the small businesses and all the small brands also have a lot to learn around customer service, about the shipping, the logistics. All of those things are going to have a few teething issues. And I know that as a brand, you probably want to ensure that your clients get things on time, etc. But you also vulnerable towards the system. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. there's a lot of other things that get into play. And I think that is where we also feel we can play a part in terms of this education. And it is about all coming together, the consumer and the creators, I believe. So Jeanne, if people visit the website, I'm sure you have all your shapes and colors and sizes online that people can purchase. Tell us a bit more about what people will see, what type of Shoes are you selling? What colors are the most popular? What designs would you say is your best seller? So without a doubt, our Aussie slip-on is a bestseller in toffee. And like toffee just sells really, really well. I think it's a brilliant entry-level shoe. If people don't know our brand, they usually start there. Also, there's a difference between um, Cape Town has that European minimalist clean vibe and we find more like Aquila, Aussie, Lindy Loafers, that simplicity but elegant simplicity will sell. Whereas Joburg likes to explore color. They'll do zebra prints, the crazy metallic, the speckling, you know, that sort of thing. So regionally, I think, and even doing trade shows, it's been so interesting to bring up a product thinking it's going to sell and learning, oh no, they actually really wanted the funky stuff or these guys wanted the more simple, clean lines. It's very interesting for me to see what sells where. Which shoe design is your absolute favorite? For me right now, it's the Asha for a heel. So it's like this loafered heel with a brown block heel. I just think it's so fun and pretty and feels international. Feels like a South African product that could be in Europe. And that's fun for me to see. And then I think my second is probably just our Sabra sandals, which are just plain crisscross, almost like I don't know. If, did you guys have Salties in South Africa, the brand? It's like a very classic beach brand in the States. Yes, yes. I've seen it. It's just a plain crisscross, you know. But for me, I love that one just because it's comfortable and easy and I can wear it with anything. And I like my feet being free. I like sandals. <laughs> <laughs> you like my sister. I like clothes shoes and you like open shoes. <laughs> it must be so interesting to see how people respond to the product. You just mentioned trade shows. Do you do a lot of trade shows and some international? Like it would be so interesting to hear more about like how international people respond to your designs versus local. Yes. So we have international sales every month and we have two websites. We have an international website. We have a local website. And so you're kind of like redirected depending on where you're at geographically. But it's also interesting because I would have thought that internationally our funkier shoes would have sold. It really depends on the marketplace too. Because like Christian, he did a with Saflec, which is uh, the South African Leather Footwear Council. We've gone to shows with them, which is like a huge blessing. We've been to Russia and Japan, Australia, a few places taking the shoes around. And each market, again, like... Um, the Australian market probably feels a little bit more like the South African market in that they are very fashionable, but they're more clean, simple, kind of have that European aspect too, where, you know, the simpler, more beautiful, elegant, like the better, well-made kind of a thing. And then Russia would be like more funky, abstract. They like the sparkly part, like the metallic kind of shoes. So it's really like who is that target market and how do you answer to them? And London really loved our ostrich feather bags and those are made 
in a different factory by a trust of women and collaboration with Ugly Bags. It's a very cute story too. <laughs> so it's so fun to see like, I mean, that was in London. So it was very metropolitan and people are not afraid to take risks. They like to dress up. And I feel like that's the way it is with Joburg too. People just wear heels, you, you wear bright suits and seeing the men in these like really cool locally made shui shui suits. It's so fun. I love it. Thanks so much for sharing that. And I feel like fashion is such a extension of one's personality. So what works for one person won't work for the other. So definitely a visit to the website is where people need to go to go and see everything that you guys offer to all the different personalities. I'm very interested just to tap into your little archive. I know you mentioned earlier that there are quite a few older products on the shelf. Are there any products or a design that you can tell us about that never saw the day of light? Something that you've created that you've never... Oh, <laughs> oh can I? Okay, there, there's some good stories coming here. Please tell us a bit more about those. Oh, man. Oh man, the shoemaking process to make a refined shoe, it's a lot of work and a lot of learning curves. And it all starts with your shoe last, which I didn't mention before, what actually is a very important part of your shoemaking. And it took me a little while to understand how to design around your last and that sort of thing. So I have made a few sandals, one in particular that looks legit like a furry creature. I don't know how to explain <laughs> it. It was a springbok toe and it was meant to be very cool and quirky and it just turned out to be like really, I don't know, like a, I want to say camel toe, but it's not the, <laughs> it's not a nice word <laughs> because it's not the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about a real camel's toe. <laughs> oh my gosh, sorry. <laughs> and I'm officially making them die. <laughs> So basically, you know, it's not good. <laughs> it's not pretty. That when it's still on the shelves for someone to buy, the really extraordinarily quirky person who needs these shoes. <laughs> so those are the shoes that went to die. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, we need to definitely come and visit that factory. <laughs> Yeah, I can show you some uh, some pretty incredible experiments. Just even our shoes, uh, to be honest, and I'm so sorry to customers from the past for even saying this because I think we're all very judgmental in our products, especially as they evolve. But in the beginning, I'm actually surprised we even sold shoes. I won't lie. Like, I think that they were so rugged. We were learning so much and we didn't know about how to refine a product. I have shoes that I've saved that I'll always keep for the history of the business to appreciate the growth of where we were to where we are now. <laughs> I'm glad I had the confidence that I had when I had it because it had been knocked down a few times. Now I'm like way more careful. But I think it's pretty incredible to just even see what we used to do. And I show it to the team and they're like, oh man, oh man, we made that. And I'm like, yeah, we made that. We've come a long way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think that is the incredible part of the constant evolution If you think about the cell phone and you think of where we've come from, do you remember those brick phones that I think you had to like pull out like the antenna, yes. you know, that yes. type of idea. It was almost more like a mobile Huge phone. House phone. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we've come from. Now we have literally like a computer in our pocket, but that constant evolution. And we're very excited to see where you guys go and the evolution of the shoe. But I want to thank you for everything you're doing. Um, 
Thank for you for supporting the, the South African system, I want to say, but also investing into people's lives and investing into creating beautiful things that are coming from Africa because I'm a real supporter for what you do. Thank you so much. And it's really wonderful to hear all the multi-layered, I think that is what I'm taking from this conversation, <laughs> <laughs> multi-layered areas of building a business and all the pivots, you know? <laughs> business of hard knocks is real. And if you want to learn what not to do, please come. <laughs> <laughs> Come hang out with me for a minute and I'll tell you what not to do. <laughs> Janae will be answering all your DMs and chatting about all your holidays <laughs> before she sells you any shoes. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. And thanks for letting me just blah out life. <laughs> you guys are going to grow from strength to strength and I just can't wait to see what you do with the online site too. It's going to be awesome. Thanks, Janae. Keep well. Thank you. If you're enjoying Behind the Edit, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and don't forget to leave a review. For those who are curious, Behind the Edit is part of a larger drive to uplift our local design industry and sister company to The Pretty Blog. If you'd like to follow what we're building, please visit thelocaledit.com and sign up to stay in the know. And as always, please keep spreading the local love on social media by following and tagging The Local Edit on Instagram. I'm Christine Mankies and you're listening to Behind the Edit.